Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome um, to part two of this uh, difficult subjects uh, series. Uh, you'll be pleased to know these aren't my sermon notes. Uh, we're not going to be here all night. Um, these are some notes for you, actually. Uh, the reason I've done these for you is because uh, it is a difficult subject tonight, and I think sometimes this is a particular subject where it may be m- more helpful tonight to listen and t- as we interact later on, uh, and not to feel you have to scribble everything down, and then to have these when you go home to work through slowly. Um, it's a sort of subject where there may be some new ideas or difficult things you've got to wrestle with. And so I've basically tried to put everything that I'm going to share and a few other things in some paper for you to work through slowly at your own time. And also to be a resource you can use as you seek to help other people in the future. Um, so this is for you to take away. Uh, it'll probably be a blessing and um, I'll leave them on the door on the way out. Um, so I'll stick them there. Let's pray as we come to look at this great subject together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge today that you are the source of all wisdom and knowledge. And as people created in your image, you have given us knowledge and wisdom. But unlike you, we do not have a monopoly on these things. There's so much that we don't understand. There's so much we need your help to understand. Please would you humble us tonight if there are things that we cannot get our heads around. Please help us to help each other as we journey together in the life of faith, seeking to put our trust in you. I pray as we look at this subject together that you would open our eyes to see what your word has to say and that we'd go from here full of joy and confidence in you in what it means that you are a sovereign God. Please help me to explain some of the passages we're going to look at together in a way that will be helpful for everyone here. And I pray, Lord, that tonight would be honouring in your sight. Amen. Well, as we said uh, last week, the, the kind of genesis of this series was a questionnaire put to people in the church asking you and many others, what are some of the questions that you're grappling with that you'd love to um, be addressed? I'm not going to, in any sense tonight, seek to give an answer to this question. That's impossible in the evening, and I didn't claim to have a monopoly of wisdom on this at all. Uh, it's more to give us a framework for how do we address some of these questions. Uh, because if we get the building blocks in place, we can build on them through the rest of our lives. So tonight isn't an answer. Um, it's about a framework giving us some building blocks. Um, the questions in the questionnaire were sort of, what does the Bible say about? Or if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And these are some of the responses that people here um, put. Uh, why are so few people in the world Christian believers? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he put more of a desire in people's hearts to understand who he is? Uh, The Bible says God both chooses who he will save, but also wants all people to be saved. Uh, How does that work? Uh, Did God determine X to happen? Uh, What's the point in evangelism and prayer if God is sovereign and knows what's going to happen anyway? Uh, Are people lost for eternity if we don't pray for them? Um, How can I be chosen by God and yet have free will? These are some of the questions, and they're all brilliant questions, really good questions. And we're going to look at some of them tonight, and some of them are addressed uh, in some of the handouts for things we probably won't touch on tonight, depending on how we go with time. But I want to acknowledge at the beginning, this is a a huge subject, rather like Wellesley introduced the subject of pornography and purity. And so we're not pretending in this series that we can kind of address and answer the questions, but it's more about giving us a framework, as I say, for addressing some of these questions. It's a huge subject. And it's a difficult subject, so it needs humility on our part. One of the great problems of the human race ever since the Enlightenment has been our desire to understand everything, to be able to explain everything. And there are times when we can't as Christians. Uh, The Bible talks about mystery. 
And that's a good place to be, because if I could understand everything and explain everything, then I would be God. You would be God. And so it's a humbling thing when we come to a difficult subject and we have to wrestle with it. So I want to encourage you tonight to wrestle with some of these truths and then to take them away. We'll need patience as well as humility, because we have whole lifetimes to learn about these great truths and to reflect on them. We need patience with each other. If something to us is very simple, but to somebody else it's a real stumbling block. So particularly in the time we have with each other after the service, I pray we'd have patience and humility as we seek to encourage each other. I recognize as well there'll be a range of understanding. Some here will have read huge amounts and lived through a lot of this through many, many decades of their life. Others will be coming to this subject very raw and fresh. And so it's quite a challenge to speak in a way tonight that will give some stretch and help to those who have done lots of thinking but not lose people for whom this is the first time they've ever thought of this question. Um, So do pray for me for the next half an hour or so. I've also recognized this week, talking to a few people in the church, it's a very emotive subject, particularly when you start talking about salvation and talking about the sovereignty of God in salvation. You start thinking about loved ones that you know of. It's a very emotive subject. And because it's an emotive subject, sometimes, like many emotive subjects, there can be a lot of heat and not a lot of light. So we need to, again, pray for patience to help each other. Um, as I say, we're going we're to really touch on a framework for thinking about this subject. So the first foundation, I'm going to put down um, three foundation stones. If you're building a building, you put the foundations down first, then you build on them. You don't then take away the foundation stones. And so here are three foundation stones that I hope and pray will help us in the future as we seek to grapple with all the illegitimate questions that were asked, including the ones I mentioned at the beginning. Three stones that I hope you will see are biblical and faithful and which you can then build on in the, in the future. Here's the first one, the foundation stone of God's sovereignty. What I'd love you to do is to turn to the person next to you, or if you really don't like doing that, you can work on your own. Three scriptures, I'd love you to look them up and just ask yourself that simple question. In what ways should these verses humble us? We'll just pause for a few minutes and give you a chance to work through them together. Let um, Let me pull us back together. I hope as you read those verses, and I could have given you a whole heap of other ones, you'll see in the scriptures that there's um, implied mystery. God is wanting to make it really clear to us, God speaking, I am God and you are not. I know everything and you don't. It's very humbling, isn't it? But God is making a really big statement. There is implied mystery in this world, which is why in places like Ephesians chapter 1, you get this wonderful verse that speaks of God working out everything in conformity to his will. So often in my life, I don't want that to be true. I want God to work out everything in conformity with my will. And I'm sure you do as well. But it's not the way. God works out everything in accordance to his will. So when we think about the sovereignty of God, uh, here's a definition which I've tried to sort of uh, distill some of the verses you've looked at. I'd perhaps define God's sovereignty like this. God's sovereignty describes his absolute authority and rule over everything in the universe. He does as he pleases, and no one can thwart his purposes. And we did touch on this a bit, didn't we, in the spiritual battle series, when we thought a bit about the devil and the power that he has, but the leash that he's on, that God keeps him on. And so those words in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, I guess a a biblical summary of what it means that God is sovereign. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. 
And so this first foundation stone, which we need to put down on the floor, which I pray will never move, which we can cling to and then um, build so it becomes a bigger and bigger stone, is God is utterly sovereign. He's in complete and utter control, despite the fact that our world to us seems like complete and utter chaos. So be, take great comfort tonight in that glorious truth. And there are plenty of other passages that you could uh, dig around in to investigate that further. Here's the second one, which we'll spend a bit more time on. The second foundation stone is human responsibility. Now, this is how the question often goes. Doesn't God's sovereignty lead to fatalism? This idea that if, if everything is predetermined and God knows everything that's going to happen before it happens, then we're kind of robots. We're not really responsible. And at the end of the day, what's the point? Because if God's got a purpose and he's going to bring it about, then why bother at all? That's the way that our mind often thinks. Let me work through a sort of logical series of questions and answers. Um, First of all, is it true that you and I are able to make choices? Yes, we are. Of course we are. We're able to make choices. But the thing we need to note is that you and I cannot make choices, or put it another way, our choices are controlled by our nature. We can only ever act in accordance with our nature. So here are some scriptures from the book of Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians. And the Bible talks about human beings have one of two natures, a sinful nature that is naturally opposed to God, and then the nature of a person who is in Christ, who's put their trust in Christ. And the sinful nature, notice that the choices that a person who has a sinful nature makes, in the Galatians passage, it's desires which are contrary to the Spirit. In other words, having desires that are not of God. In the Ephesians passage, it's about following our desires and our thoughts, not God's. And in the Colossians passage, there's this command to put to death what belongs to our earthly nature because the choices we make when instructed by our earthly nature will never honor God. But if we are in Christ, if God gives us a new nature and gradually transforms our heart to become more like him, then the choices we make then can begin to please him and honor him. So it's always important to think that the choices that we make are controlled by our nature. And we know as well that God will never work contrary to our nature. So here's uh, some scripture from James chapter 3, where James asked the question, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now the context here is James is talking about words. He's saying words that are true and are going to build up come from a heart that's been so transformed by God. A godless heart struggles to speak those kind of words. But he's making the point that God chooses never to work in the way that's contrary to our nature. And so the sinful nature will always choose the sinful nature other than if God works. And this means that you and I cannot make decisions or choices that please God without him first working in our heart. So you'll know that lovely verse in Philippians chapter 2. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. If Christ does not work in us, we will not will, we will not desire to please God, and we will not be able to please God. I don't please God because I want to please him. I please God because God enables me to please him. That's a difficult thing to wrestle with. So let's journey on from that a bit further. Am I therefore free to make choices in light of the fact that God is sovereign? That's a really good question that many people will ask. 
And the issue here is the issue surrounding how, how people often describe it, free will. And I want to suggest that free will is actually a very unhelpful phrase. It's not a biblical phrase. It's a phrase we use a lot, but we need to be very careful in, in what sense we're talking about freedom when we talk about free will. Because you often hear people say, well, I have free will. What do we actually mean by that? So let's sort of look at this together. Here's a question for you. Is God free? Yes. He's free to do absolutely everything he wants. He's independent. He's eternal. He's self-sustaining. He can do anything, which is what we looked at in that definition of sovereignty. There's nothing God cannot do other than the limitations he imposes upon himself, such as God cannot lie God cannot be untrue to himself. There are things God can't do, but there are things that he cannot do by virtue of who he is. But there's nothing that God is, uh, there's no limitation that God has not placed upon himself where he is restricted by something. So God is free, yes. Second question, are you and I free? In some sense, yes, we are free, and we're going to look at this. We are free to make choices. We're free to make responsible choices that are meaningful and have consequences. We're about to come to that. But are we free in an absolute sense like God is? No, because I am created. I am not eternal. I am not all-knowing. And so when you talk about the absolute freedom of God, that is not a freedom that any human being um, has. But often when we use the phrase free will, we sort of blow it around rather sort of brandishly. I think often almost assuming that we have a sovereign independence of God. Rather like in Psalm 2 where the kings and rulers say, let's throw off our shackles. Let's be independent from God. The irony is you cannot be independent from God because he created you. So when we talk about freedom, we don't have freedom in an absolute sense. Because we're utterly dependent on God for everything. So instead of using this phrase free will, which I don't think is particularly helpful, the Bible speaks much more in terms of the category of responsibility. So come to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in your mind. You can turn to it if you want. But you'll know the passage. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God says to his people, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. So there is a degree of freedom they're given, a pretty big degree of freedom. They can eat anywhere. But don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the, knowledge of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, why did God say that? It wasn't so much that he was giving them the ability to determine what was right or wrong, but he was asking them to choose to be obedient to what he had revealed to them was right and wrong. But when the serpent comes along in chapter 3, verse 4, what does the serpent say? Trying to twist the words of God, trying to deceive mankind, the serpent says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And he speaks it in the sense, not so much of just knowing good and evil, but you will be the ones who will be able to determine what is good and evil. In other words, don't listen to God. Don't let him determine what is right and good and evil. You become the determiner. You decide. God's the killjoy. And that tree he doesn't want you to eat from is the best one. And he's withheld it from you. This is the words of Satan. See, Satan is trying to show you and I that we don't have responsibility and that God has tried to remove from us any sense of dignity and worth and he's tried to restrict us. But the Bible says, no, you actually do have responsibility. Responsibility to respond to what God has revealed as right and wrong. So here's a series of questions for you. Are you responsible and able to make choices? Yes, you are. You're able to make responsible choices. Are your choices real? Yes, they are real choices. Do your choices have consequences? Yes. 
Will you be held accountable for your choices? Yes. Final question. Are your wills or your choices sovereign in an absolute sense from the influence of God? No. Because I cannot be in any sense absolutely free from God. Not in a world which he has created. It's impossible. And so God is able in his amazing wisdom to act on our wills and our hearts without interfering with our moral responsibility. I can make responsible, real, meaningful choices that have consequences which I will be held accountable for. But God is still able to act on my will as I make those choices. And the two don't have to be contradictory. Or to put it another way, God never overrides our responsibility, but he does transform our will so that we are able to exercise our responsibility in a God-honoring way. That's why we talked about at the beginning about we are only able to, able to act in accordance with our nature. I cannot please God unless he first works in my heart. It's impossible. But when he works in my heart and gives me a new heart, by his grace, bit by bit, I can begin to please him. I'll try and give you a worked example. Um, here's a sort of analogy from the life of a pastor. Uh, I need to go and visit somebody. They're really struggling, but I have a splitting headache. So I have a choice to make. Do I go and visit this person, or do I stay at home because I have a headache? I choose to go and visit them. Was that choice a real choice? Yeah. Did that choice have a consequence? Yes. Was that choice in any way influenced Yes. You see, I can think in my mind, that person really wants me to come and visit them. And last time I visited them when they were sick, they really appreciated it. I can also think in my mind, yes, I've got a splitting headache, but I know it will go eventually. And so using those influences, perhaps using my wife's influence where she says, no, you should go tonight, or no, you've been done too many visits, you need to stay home. All these different influences help me make a choice. And on that particular occasion, I chose to go and visit this sick person, despite the headache. But you see, I could have chosen not to go and visit them, despite having all that same information around me. So even though um, our choices can be influenced, it doesn't cease for them to become meaningful choices, you see. And and if I allow uh, my wife to influence my choice in going to visit someone or not, or my previous understanding of whether or not the headache would go to influence my choice, why can't God influence our choices in the same way? but our choice is still to be real and meaningful. And so I want us to see that you and I can make real choices. We can be really responsible. We have, we're culpable for the decisions that we make, but God can still influence them. And that doesn't make us robots or puppets on a string. In a similar way, you and I can make real choices, even though God knows the choices we're going to make before we even make them. Just wrestle with that in your mind. This is where people come up with this idea of fatalism. God knows what I'm going to choose, so it's not really a real choice. No, God is just sovereign, and he knows everything. And you've got to remember, God's relationship to time is very different to us. All I see is this, and have experience of what's behind, and perhaps see potentially what might happen in the future based on past experience. But God sits outside of time and sees everything. So of course God can see everything and knows every choice that's going to be made, even before we make it. But it doesn't mean that the choices we make are not real. It's just a function of how incredible God is. And so when we talk about God's sovereignty, it's not a divine determinism that robs us of our freedom to choose and make responsible choices. He is sovereign, but he holds us responsible. And the two can sit side by side. And that's what you've got to wrestle with.
And this is difficult, I know, which is why I've given some quite long notes so that you can read through this slowly and come back to grapple with it. But that's the second foundation stone. Trust that God is utterly sovereign and he will always carry out his purposes in his world. And equally, trust that you and I are responsible and we make choices that have consequences and they're real choices, even though God influences them. Here's the third um, building block or foundation stone. This is probably the frustration that we have. And you maybe didn't want to hear this one. We've got to live with the tension. I'll give you an illustration. Um, I am holding this ball up with my hand. If I pull my hand away, the ball will fall to the ground. Question, did I cause that ball to fall, yes or no? Thank you, Simon. But in a sense, yes, I did, because I had my sustaining hand underneath, and it would have stayed there, but when I removed it, it fell. And as you see, I asked the question, did the ball fall because of me or not? Yes and no. Yes, it fell because of me because I removed my sustaining hand. No, it fell because of gravity. I didn't cause it to fall. It could have stayed there. Stupid ball fell. And so, so often there can be two truths that you hold in tension. It's what the Bible calls a paradox. Two truths that are both true but held in tension and they seem to be directly contradictory. Uh, it's like kind of two train tracks. And so often you get truths held side by side in Scripture and you have to wrestle with them. Uh, one of the big truths that people often wrestle with is you've got the loving grace of God that rescues sinful people. And you've got the just judgment of a loving God who has to deal with sin. Sometimes it's easy to make a big thing of God's loving grace and just explain away his just judgment. But actually, the truth is, true love is both. And so there's tensions you have to wrestle with. Yes, God is an incredible God who will rescue sinful people and have mercy on people who don't deserve it. But he's still a God who will judge sin. It doesn't make him unloving. You have to wrestle with truths. And this is a good example. So another bit of work for you. Two verses from the book of Acts. You can turn to the person next to you. I want you to ask you the question, who is responsible for Jesus' death? And then if I look at Acts chapter 16, who is responsible for the wealthy businesswoman Lydia's conversion? Just spend a few minutes thinking about this together. Let's uh, come back together. Uh, These are just illustrations to try and show this this paradox, this tension between two truths. I hope they're kind of self-explanatory, but let's go to the Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Do you see it there? Who killed Jesus? It's a wonderful word, isn't it? This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. There's God's sovereignty. He knew from before the beginning of time that Jesus Christ would be crucified. The cross wasn't God's second plan where he went back to the drawing board with the architect angels to rework out his plan because Satan scuppered it. He always knew that Jesus would go to the cross because it's through the cross and the resurrection he'd be glorified. God's sovereignty, but... You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Did those evil, wicked people who nailed those nails through Jesus' hands and feet choose to do it? Were they responsible? Will they be held accountable? Yes, all those things are true. And so you have sovereignty and responsibility that sit side by side. Who, who nailed Jesus to the cross? Who killed him? Okay, and then in chapter 4, you get another example of this. It's the same sort of idea. I won't go to it. And then Acts chapter 16, you get this lovely passage where three people are converted in Philippi. Um, the jailer, the slave girl, and this wealthy businesswoman. And look at the phrase here in Acts chapter 16, uh, verse 14. Who's responsible 
for Lydia's conversion. Lydia, let, why don't you answer this one? Seeing as you're here. What do you reckon? Who helped Lydia's heart be opened? Brilliant. God opened Lydia's heart. If God hadn't opened Lydia's heart, she'd never have ever believed. But how else did Lydia come to faith? Paul spoke to her. And if Paul hadn't spoken, she wouldn't have come to faith. Do you see? God's sovereignty, human responsibility, and they sit side by side in leading to this person's conversion. And so the fact that God knows all things shouldn't leave us in this sort of fatalistic position where we just go, well, what's the point in evangelism? Why bother praying? God knows who's he's going to save. No, God has chosen to use means to carry out his purposes. And those means include our evangelism, include our prayers. His sovereign power sits alongside our responsibility and they bring about God's purposes. So I hope that you can see that here are three really essential building blocks for all the legitimate questions we have, and we might have some time to address some of them now. Let these three things be steadfast in your faith and immovable. God is sovereign. You and I are responsible. We have to live with attention. And if we can get these as foundations, then what we do is we build on top of them. If you lead with the bricks on the top, what will happen? You won't have a foundation and they'll fall to the floor. And the, the questions, the bricks at the top, are often the emotive ones, the difficult ones, the ones we have to wrestle with. But we answer those questions or seek to answer them by first building on a foundation. Without that foundation, we're in really, really shaky ground. Well, what I've done in, in the handout is I've tried to take some of the particular questions that you have asked and address them. I'll just give you what they are. And then depending on what you'd like to do, we can either just open it up for some comments and questions and, and throw this around together, or we can maybe could address one of them. Um, we'll go for maybe another 10 minutes or so. But one of the questions that was asked that we've addressed is, um, what's the point in prayer and evangelism if God is sovereign and knows who he will save? And that's uh, outlined in the handouts. I've uh, cited a couple of helpful things that C.S. Lewis have written on the subject. Uh, one, again, a pretty big subject and perhaps the most emotive, the whole doctrine of election and predestination. Uh, and that's something that often gets us very hot under the collar and we struggle with. Um, but I've tried to show why both they're biblical doctrines and also wonderful doctrines because they give you as a Christian incredible assurance. And so we can wrestle with them, but they're difficult. Uh, the third question we've looked at is the whole idea of how do we respond to universalism that's becoming an increasingly popular idea that at the end of the day, God's love will win and everyone will be saved. I don't think that's a biblical understanding. Uh, and we've got to be very careful that we don't just default to that because it's easier for us to hear. And then the last one, which we'll perhaps close on to help with our prayers, is what kind of attitude do you and I need to be able to respond to the sovereignty of God? Um, so we've got a few minutes. Would people like just to make, share some reflections, your own wisdom and knowledge, if you want to share something that would help other people or maybe a particular question you've got, um, something you want to push back on? We're here to learn together. Uh, this isn't a complete answer in any sense. Let's just have a, a bit of time to throw some things around. Do you want to hear the question? I talk about the headache of going to see this person. Did God cause that headache? And I guess the question that comes out of that is um, when something really tragic happens in the world, did God cause that to happen? Or did God just allow it to happen? I think this, again, it isn't a cop-out, but I think there is a tension here. Um, we have to wrestle with truths, don't we? So we are caught up in a broken, fallen world. D did God allow us to get caught up in a broken, fallen world? Did he allow Satan to rebel? Yes, he did. Uh, ultimately, is my headache a result of that? In an ultimate sense, yes, it is, like all hardship and difficulty. 
Um, did God directly send that headache to me to teach me something? I don't know that you can say that in the same way that you could say when a child is um, raped, God made that happen. But in a, in a similar sense, God doesn't just permit, allow stuff to happen in a very sort of casual way of kind of, oh, I'll allow it to happen and one day I will stop it. That there is a, a stronger sense, I think, in which his sovereignty will work through evil. And this is where our limited minds that cannot possibly see good that can ever come from something has to fall back on the sovereignty of God. Um, I don't know, did he cause that headache in a sort of directive sense? Probably not. I have a headache because I live in a broken world and my body's a bit broken and I get dehydrated and I get a headache. Uh, Did God use the headache? Definitely, because he uses all things to bring about his purposes. Yeah, well, I made the point um, earlier on, it's in your notes, you know, God's sovereignty is not de- divine determinism in the sense that it robs us of our freedom. So the fact that God knows everything that's going to happen, yes, in one level, he is determining everything that will happen. Everything that happens ultimately brings God glory. And that's really hard to wrestle with when something terrible happens and you go, how can that possibly bring God glory? And this is where sometimes we just have to say, I do not know. And if I have to wrestle with God all of my life or be cross with God all my life, then so be it. And there's certainly things in my life that I have to do that in. I just don't know. But I think we need to be careful. His, his sovereignty is not a kind of blind determinism that means that we're robots. That means that what will be what will be what will, it will be, totally irrespective of us. God works through our personalities. He works through our hearts. He works through other people. And so, again, it feels like a cop-out, but there's this wrestling. God will always bring about his purposes, even when I make a really poor choice. My choices can never throw God off his plan in that sense. And that gives us great confidence as Christians that even when we muck up, God will still achieve his purposes. Even when you know, I, I, I muck up the opportunity to share Christ, it's not going to stop God if he's chosen to save someone, saving them. Um, but it's not a determinism in the sense that means that I'm a robot and if I didn't do anything, nothing would happen. God uses means to bring about his purposes. Yeah, I'm sure he does. I think there's times to be obedient. The Bible talks lots about obedience um, and us responding to obedience. Um, often we don't grow in godliness if we're not obedient. So we can choose the easy road. We can choose the way that dis- does dishonors God. God knows that we'll choose that because he knows everything. But he will use it to grow us maybe. He'll use it in another situation. Yeah, I think so. So in that sense, there's never a, a full weight of responsibility on me that when I've blown it, I've blown it, and that person's eternal destiny is all on my head. No, it's not. It's on God's head. That's a wonderful thing. My eternal destiny is on God's head, not my ability to know God or people who witness to me. So it takes the pressure off in evangelism that it's all about us. But God, in his amazing wisdom, chooses to use us, which is just incredible. He'd use someone who's mucked up and broken and keeps making mistakes and chickens out all the time. Um, but I think when we talk about things like guidance, often it's sort of, we think there are two paths and God is sort of, people who hold to a, um, an understanding of deism is this idea that God has kind of wound up the clock and stepped away and then these, these two paths and I've got to figure out which path to walk on. And if I walk down this path, then I've strayed off God's will and purpose in my life. I don't think that happens. I can never be outside of God's will uh, because he will always achieve his purposes in my life. And so it's not about me choosing which path. And if I choose this path, then again, God's plans are scuppered. I think we just have to have a big, big view of God. Um, but yeah, when we muck up, don't put all our weight on ourselves because there are other people who can pick up the pieces. Well, I, I, I guess... I guess going back to the whole thing we did with the spiritual battles and Satan is, is, could God have stopped Satan influencing Adam and Eve? Of course he could. But when you take the whole of the Bible in its full glory, God knew from the beginning of time 
that Adam and Eve would sin, and he allowed it to happen. And it was actually part of his purpose because God would get greater glory through his incredible salvation plan. And in his incredible infinite wisdom, uh, it was better that that happened. And that's hard to wrestle with, particularly when you think, well, if Adam and Eve brought sin into the world and I'm wrestling with sin in my life or terrible suffering, surely it would have been better if this, I hadn't gone through this. And this is where we need great humility, particularly if we're suffering, to be able to say, God, I have no idea what you're teaching me. And maybe this side of heaven I'll never know. Um, but I need to wrestle with these truths. Uh, and that will be difficult. Uh, one of the scriptures that often uh, pointed to is the end of um, Genesis chapter 50, the end of Joseph's life. And you know the great f- the phrase, uh, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I think sometimes that's misunderstood as almost um, when Joseph's brother sold him off to slavery, that was kind of outside of God's plan, but God managed to sort of reel in Joseph and, and fix it. Now, God knew that Joseph would be put into slavery and it was all part of his purpose. But it's a wonderful declaration that whatever evil is done in the world, ultimately it will bring about God's purposes. And that's a great truth to cling to, yeah. I'd go to places like um, Romans chapter 1. You know, the, um, I'll just turn to it so I can read it and not blag it. Uh, although they knew God, they neither glorified God, uh, chapter 1, verse 21, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools, exchanging the glory of God for images. And this is the key verse. Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the, exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and it goes on later to say, and God gave them over too. So there is a sense in which when I make a meaningful choice to turn my back on God. Um, he does do what he did to Pharaoh. He will further harden my heart, which is frightening when you see someone with a hard heart. One of the most terrifying things for me in life is to see somebody who once walked with the Lord walking away from the Lord. It's frightening because the scriptures will often talk about if a person has a hard heart towards God and resists God's work of drawing them to himself, then he will further harden their heart in judgment. And that's a frightening thing. But God often uses it for his purposes. Sometimes it's to harden their hearts such that they get to such a bad place that they recognize what they had and they come back to him. And there's some wonderful stories of of the prodigal son, as it were, who walks off and then God in his sovereignty brings them back. Um, So God definitely uses the hardness of our heart. But I think C.S. Lewis in one of his books, probably The Great Divorce, where he's talking about heaven and hell, talks about hell being this kind of train that's running away from God, that's only ever speeding up. So it's this desire that if I choose to reject God then God hands me over to the desire of my heart and it will only ever get worse for me. And that's a frightening place to be. Any more thoughts, Stuart? It's just a passage of scripture which has helped me recently. Um, Nebuchadnezzar the king, 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon and he reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great which I have myself have built, my royal power and the glory of my majesty? While the word was in his mouth, the voice of heaven came to him saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and you will dwell with the beasts of the field and you'll be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high God is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. And his hair grew long like eagle's feathers. And his nails were like the talons of a bird. 
but at the end of the period, Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes towards heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God and praised him and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is forever, and his kingdom endures forever. And his inhabitants of the earth, according to nothing, he does according to his will. And the most high heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can travel, no, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored. For me, the glory of my kingdom and my councils and my nobles began to seek me out, and I was reestablished and my sovereignty and my surpassing greatness was added to. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the honor of the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and all his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now during, it was just two points, two questions. During his outcast and in the field and eating grass and being feeling like an animal or based in all his glory and majesty was taken away from him. And the people who knew that he was the king obviously saw him and he'd lost his mind. Did he know he was in the center of God's will? And I'd say probably not. But we know because we can see the whole story at the end, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven whose works are true and his ways are just. We know the answer of that is even though he was in the deepest despair and lost his mind and lost everything, he was absolutely in the center of God's will at that time. Mm. So our view of what's going on in our lives can be incredibly distorted because we're in the world, we're in a sinful world. Mm. But God's view of what's going on is not distorted like, like us. Mm. That was the point, yeah, thank you, which Stuart. was complicated, so I couldn't say it from that now. No, that's great. <laughs> Um, thank you, Stuart. And it's, it's really humbling to hear you read those words. For those who perhaps are visiting don't know, Stuart's battling with cancer. And so to hear those words read of someone who is trusting, even though you don't have answers and you don't know what will happen, is a, a really wonderful thing. Um, friends, th- these are hard subjects, aren't they? There are difficult things to grapple with. And as I said at the beginning, we're not going to answer them. Uh, the purpose of tonight was to give us what's on the screen behind me, a foundation to build on. So I pray after the service, as we continue talking, as we keep grappling with these, if we go away angry or frustrated or, 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 or wanting to struggle with these things, then start your prayers of frustration and anger with these three great truths and cling to them. Cling to them in the darkness and build on them other things through the rest of your life. And this is where we're here to help each other. Um, but I pray that's been a helpful introduction, at least, to a difficult subject. And uh, the notes are quite extensive and full, but I hope it gives you a chance just to go away and continue to reflect and pray. And I'm sure we can come back to some of these subjects in the future if that would be helpful. Um, I think what we'll do is just have a few moments of quiet to give us a chance just to respond in our own hearts. There may be things you want to pray about or just to sit quietly. We'll have a few moments of quiet and then I'll ask the band to come up and lead us in a closing song. And the wonderful thing about the closing song is the words indescribable and containable. It's a song that lifts our eyes to God. And uh, when we're in despair and when we're struggling... Uh, one of the best things we can do is lift our voices in song to God. Um, So we'll close the service with that in a few moments' time.